When I used to drive to work each morning, when I was working in Winchester, the journey used to take about 30 minutes, and I always seemed to be travelling between about 7.30 and 8 o'clock, and I'd be listening to Radio 4 on the radio, and about 10 to 8, as those who might hear Radio 4, they have a thought for the day. And I used to enjoy hearing that before I got into work. And one of the speakers that I always appreciated, and I think she still does do thoughts for the day from time to time, was a lady called Anne Aston. And I can remember one thought that struck me, because she was talking about children's stories. And she finished the thought for the day by suggesting that we should all, all of us, should try to be more childlike in our lives. And we read in Matthew 18 for the scripture that uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples about children. And he said this, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's tough words, isn't it? I don't think he was talking about the size of the gates, by the way, to heaven. If you read the next verse, which is verse 6, um, and this is from the Aramaic Bible, translated into plain English, Jesus makes an even stronger statement. This is how much he thought children were important. Anyone who commits an offence against one of these little ones who believe in me, if it were profitable for him that a donkey's millstone would be hung around his neck and he'd be sunk in the depths of the sea. Tough words. If anybody harms a child, you would rather have a millstone around your neck and dropped into the sea. That's what Jesus said. So what did he mean? What do you mean to say that we need to be like little children? What attributes do children have that Jesus thinks that we adults need if we're to stand any chance of entering the kingdom of heaven? Maybe while you think about some answers to those questions, here are a few thoughts to whet your thinking. Abraham Lincoln once wrote, A child is a person who's going to carry on what you've started. He will assume control of your cities, your states and your nations. All your books are going to be judged, praised or condemned by him or her. The fate of humanity is in his or her hands. And then there are the things that children say, isn't there? You know, there's a little girl, she's watching her mother do the dishes, and she notices that her mother's got a few white hairs growing in her hair. And the little girl says, why are some of your hairs white, mummy? And her mother mischievously replies, well, every time you do something naughty, one of my hairs turn white. So the little girl thinks for a moment, and then she says, mummy, how come all of grandma's hairs are white? 
think about it. Another little girl asks, can I go outside and play with the boys? And her mother replies, no dear, you can't play with the boys, they're too rough. Okay, says the little girl, if I can find a smooth one, can I play with him? And then on the first day of reception, sorry, the first day of school, a reception teacher explains that if anybody has to go to the bathroom, they should hold their hand up. And then she hears a little voice from the back saying, oh, I wonder how that will help. An infant teacher is observing her classroom of children while they draw pictures. She approaches one child to ask what the drawing is meant to be. And the youngster replies, I'm drawing God. The teacher pauses and then says, but no one knows what God looks like. And without looking up from her drawing, she hears a little girl say, well, they will in a minute. And after a church service, a little boy is telling his pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. Oh, thank you, the minister says. But why? Because my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. <laughs> Wonderfully honest creatures, aren't they, children? Very honest. And finally, some grown-up theology from a six-year-old called Anna who shared with the Irish author Flynn. This is what this six-year-old little girl said. The difference from a person and an angel is easy. Most of an angel is on the inside. Most of a person is on the outside. She didn't make it to eight years. She died. But just before she died, she said, I bet Mr. God lets me into heaven for this. And as Flynn put it, I bet he will too. So what is it about a child then that appeals? William Barclay, the, uh, the writer, theologian, suggests there are four things about children that we should consider. The first is child's trust. A child's trust. A child isn't suspicious a child instinctively trusts other people. And a child still thinks that the world is full of friends. The second is a child's ability to forgive and to forget, even when adults treat them badly. The third is a child's dependence. A child trusts its parents that its needs will be met. It doesn't enter a child's head that its parents won't keep it safe. And the fourth is a child's humility. Now that's an interesting characteristic, humility. When you know you've got it, you've lost it. The dictionary defines humility or being humble as being conscious of one's failings, being unpretentious. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 18. The disciples are arguing again, and this time it's about who's going to be the greatest inhabitant in heaven, which clearly seems to show that they have absolutely no idea what the kingdom of heaven is. Here they are thinking about personal ambition, prestige, position, power, and yet Jesus calls a child over and points out to his disciples that encapsulated 
in this youngster are all the characteristics that one needs to become a citizen of heaven. Now, I like Barclay's four characteristics. Trust, forgive and forget, dependence, humility. I mean, they're the sort of attributes I'm sure we would all come up with when we think about children. You know, small, defenceless, innocent, sweet, butter-wouldn't-melt creatures, aren't they? That's exactly what Jesus had in mind, didn't he? But did he? See, my experience of children, and probably yours too, and certainly parents here, would probably produce a slightly longer list of attributes for their children. In fact, the sort of attributes that, children, uh, that parents like to try and spend a lot of time trying to change. You know, the, the noisy, the naughty, the grubby tendencies that all children seem to have. Is it possible that Jesus might have meant some of those characteristics as well? In Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that when we become grown-ups, we should put away childish things. But was Jesus talking about childish things, or was he talking about being childlike? We need to know the difference. What is it about children that make them children? Because without discovering or rediscovering the essence of being a child, it would appear that we stand not an earthly, sorry, a heavenly chance. Jesus was quite clear. Mike Iaconelli tells a story about his two-year-old nephew. It's Christmas time, and overnight there's been an amazing winter snowfall. The sort that you never forget when... You know, millions of white flakes fill the air and fall to the ground. It quietens everything, swallows up all the sounds and covers everything in white. And his little nephew had never seen snow before. And there are all the adults peering out of the, of the French windows, out into the garden, and he's wondering what's going on. They're getting excited and he's missing out. What on earth are they looking at? Well, his life is about to change. So the adults open the French windows and they call him over. And a two-year-old child is suddenly transported from a world that he thinks he knows to one he's never seen before. His eyes stretch in astonishment. They stretch so big as though it's the only way to understand is to make them bigger, to take it all in. And he stands motionless, paralyzed, and takes a little step forward. And his body starts jerking as snowflakes land on his skin and on his face. His mind is a confusion of white, of cold, of floating, of flying, of tingling, of landing, of touching, of, of sparkling, of melting, all at the same time. And it causes such an overload in the little lad that he falls over backwards and lands in the snowy whiteness. He's given up trying to understand snow and he's given in to simply experiencing it. Children have this amazing sense of wonder, don't they? For a moment, this little lad comes face to face with life at its fullest, and he doesn't know whether to cry, to laugh, to be afraid, or to be happy. But he's full of wonder. And not only do children have a sense of wonder, they also find the ordinary just as intriguing as the extraordinary. 
Think back to Christmas time when you've got little ones and the youngster opens his Christmas gift and ends up all day playing with the paper in the box rather than the toy that came in it. Yes, remember that? Or when a dawdling child is with you on a walk in the countryside and becomes totally obsessed with a little bug that's walking across the path rather than all the other things that you're trying to show him. You see, youngsters are less impressed with power and big events than we are. They seem to have an innate levelling mechanism that keeps reality in perspective and sees the values of little things. Perhaps a childlike faith enables God to make use of the ordinary and then to make it extraordinary. Barclay suggests that one of the tragedies of growing up into adults is our loss of amazement and wonder in life, and especially our loss of awe in God our Creator. He suggests that adults need to pray every day something like this, God, please keep me from losing my sense of wonder. How does it happen? How do we adults lose what children have? There's an old farming story. A cow is nibbling on a tuft of grass in the middle of a field. He's moving from one tuft of grass to another. And soon he ends up to, next to some grass that's near a fence and there's a hole in the fence. And she wanders through and soon finds herself out on the road nibbling the grass along the verge. And keeps wandering, trying out new patches of grass as they appear. And the farmer says, well, cows don't intend to get lost. They just nibble their way to lostness. Is that what you do? Is that what I do as adults? We just nibble our way to lostness. Something else attracts us and we move on and move on and soon we've moved right away from where we started. None of us intend to wander away, but one day we wake up to find that bit by bit we've simply moved on. Robert Capon is an Episcopal priest. He suggests that we adults are very good at allowing obstacles to squelch our wonder and to steal our souls. He points out that adults are constantly caught up in a war between astonishment and dullness. We seem to lose our enthusiasm for things that meant so much to us when we were younger. And it affects us. It infects our faith. As Christians, the good news is no longer good news. It's just okay news. We're no longer astonished and amazed by the gospel. Have you noticed how children constantly ask questions? It's almost as if a child's mind is shaped like a question mark. When every sentence begins with the word, why... And of course, if you provide an answer, another question comes along. Why? More questions follow. Maybe it's because children are incredibly curious. They want to find things out. They want to know things, to touch things, to catch things, to find things, to get answers. And annoyingly for adults, they're not always satisfied with the first answer that they get. 
Now, the Bible has a lovely example of a curious childlike person. Someone who I think has been much maligned. His name was Thomas. One of Jesus' disciples. He believed in Jesus. He trusted in him. He followed him. He was willing to die for him. But he was also infected with a risky curiosity. You see, when everyone else said that they'd seen Jesus after the crucifixion, Thomas wasn't satisfied. He wanted more. He wanted to touch Jesus, to hear him, to see him and to hug him. I think Thomas has been unfairly labelled a doubter. I don't think he was doubting Jesus. He just wanted to see him for himself. He wasn't refusing to believe. He was simply refusing to settle for a second-hand faith. And note this, Jesus did not criticise Thomas. In fact, he honoured his curiosity and showed him his scars. Another story from Mike Iaconelli. He tells of a friend home from hospital after a heart attack. His friend's wife has suggested that the two families celebrate Christmas together. And Iaconelli, he was a minister, has agreed to hold a communion service in their home. Now, joining the celebration are all the immediate family members, plus some neighbours with their youngsters. And after placing the bread and wine on the table, Iaconelli asks if there are any questions before he starts. And one of the youngsters speaks up and asks if he's allowed to take part in the service. Sure, Iaconelli says. Do you understand what it all means? And the lad's father interrupts and says, yes, I've explained it all to him. So the lad, his name was Joshua, shares the bread and the wine. However, just as Iaconelli is about to say the final prayer, Joshua suddenly blurts out, Sir, how can you hear God speak to you? And Iaconelli admits he was thrown by that question. But after a moment or two, he hears himself say, Well, Joshua, if you listen very carefully, you'll know when God speaks to you. It may not be an audible voice, it may not happen straight away, but if you really listen, you will hear God speak. So Joshua takes him at his word. He squeezes his eyes closed, he scrunches up his body into receiving mode, and he starts listening very intently. Of course, Iaconelli has given an adult answer to a child's question. And also, he wasn't expecting him to put the answer to the test so soon. Because suddenly Joshua yells, I heard him! I heard God speak! And Iaconelli recalls that he honestly didn't think anyone in the room actually believed that Joshua had heard God speak. Everyone was just trying to be nice, not really expecting God to show up. But Iaconelli asked, what did, what, what did he say? Knowing he was probably now patronising the lad and expecting a childish response. And Joshua looks straight at him, his eyes wide, open with wonder, and he whispers, he said, don't forget me. A boy's risky curiosity had brought him into the presence of God. Children aren't afraid to ask for help. They don't seem to have a problem admitting when they're in trouble or in over their heads, unlike adults. So maybe if we want to experience childlike faith, we might need to be willing to admit that we need help more often. 
And children are also very good at being themselves. Robert Fogan, the American children's writer, tells of the time when he was given the responsibility of looking after a large group of five-year-olds for an hour or so, all on his own. And in desperation, he decided to teach them the game of giants, wizards, and dwarves. An organized chaos follows as each child has to find a partner and act out their particular part. While Fogum tries hard amidst all the noise to work out who the winner is. And while that mayhem is in progress, he feels a tug on his trouser leg. And he looks down to see a little girl with blue eyes looking up at him. Yes, he says. And the little girl says, please, mister, where do the mermaids go? Now, even though Fulgham had made it clear to these children that there were only three categories in the game, wizards, giants, dwarves, the little girl was not deterred. She was saying in unmistakable terms, you may think there are only giants, wizards and dwarves in this game, but you're wrong. I'm a mermaid. Deal with it. You see, the little girl had refused to accept the categories that she had been given, as if they were the only ones available. She knew who she was, and she wasn't afraid to say so. Children love playing pretend, don't they? Pretend games. But have you noticed that they rarely pretend in real situations? Whereas adults dislike playing pretend games, but they're absolutely brilliant at living a life of pretense. Acting like God is in control, but not really believing it. Giving the impression that everything is okay in one's life when it's not. Hiding doubts, never admitting to mistakes. That's the adults. Children simply tell things as they are. A minister relates a time he was preaching and halfway through the sermon he knew it wasn't quite working. His message wasn't quite connecting. And the congregation were getting restless. No matter what adjustments he made to his notes it was clear that they were starting to fidget. They were glancing at their watches. They were beginning to look bored. So he decides to admit the truth. I, uh, I, I, uh, I realise that I've gone on too long this morning but I've just got one more point to make, he said. And as he said that, a little girl in the front row threw her arms in the air and said as loudly as everybody heard, Oh, no! Everyone was thinking exactly what the little girl was thinking, but she had the bravery to say it. Yes, children can be very unpredictable. They do things that we'd rather they didn't, usually at times that we'd prefer that they didn't inappropriate ones. They have the unique ability to surprise us and make us feel uncomfortable. And I've been recently been reading about someone who used to do that a lot. Surprising people and making them feel uncomfortable. According to four people that wrote biographies about this person, he was also very unpredictable. He would do things like eating his meals at the wrong house. He'd hang around with the wrong sort of people. He'd try to help people on the wrong day of the week. He would break the law. Those sorts of unpredictable things. One story is told about him that took place at night. 
His friends are rowing across a lake. He's trying to catch up on some sleep. And a storm blows up, and before long the boat is being slammed about, taking in water. It's in danger of sinking, and the crew, they're all experienced sailors, they're terrified. So it must have been a bad storm. And they decide to wake their leader up, screaming something like, we're all going to drown, do something. And so Jesus does do something. He quietly says, be still. And the storm stops. And everything becomes quiet. Now I can't help thinking that while the disciples must have been pretty scared during the storm, afterwards they must have been totally petrified not daring to move for at least half an hour until perhaps one of them finds the courage to whisper to the others in a quavery voice, whatever you do, don't make him mad. You see, they had just experienced the unpredictability of Jesus. And someone once said that faith and predictability cannot coexist. I'll say that again. Faith and predictability cannot coexist. If you're looking for a life that is totally predictable, say goodbye to your faith. I'm talking about being afraid. That's something else about children, isn't it? They love being scared. They love stories that have frightening bits. They like hiding behind the sofa. When there's a scary film on. They like playing scary monsters with dad. What is it about kids that enjoy terror in a safe environment? And Iaconelli writes that he doesn't see very much childlike terror anymore among Christians. He wonders if the modern followers of Christ are no longer in awe of God. He asks what's happened to that bone chilling earth-shattering, gut-wrenching, knee-knocking, heart-stopping, life-altering fear, the sort that should leave us speechless, paralysed, gobsmacked, heart-thumpingly helpless, yet glad at the same time. He wonders if we've all become too familiar with the gospel, sanitised it, flattened it, removed its sting, taken the scare out of it, ending up with just a feel-good gospel. When did our awe of God get reduced to a lukewarm appreciation? When did God become a pal instead of a heart-stopping presence? How can we think of Jesus without remembering his ground-shaking, thunder-crashing, stormy exit on that cross? Maybe we adults need to be scared more often. To have to try catching our breath more often. To feel awesome terror more often. To understand that our God is no ordinary God. Now what else is there about children? Oh yes, they can be very unruly, can't they? Well, mostly other people's children, of course, not ours. They love to expend energy, hurtle around, making lots of noise. Nearly always when we adults are holding a conversation, 
They don't seem to understand that there are rules in life. Here's a recent editorial I came across describing the problem. It was titled The Generation Gap. Talking about slightly older children, if you like, but still children. This is what it said. The world is passing through troubled times. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents of old age. They're impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they alone know everything. And what passes for wisdom with us is foolishness with them. And as for the girls, they're immodest and unwomanly in speech, behaviour and dress. Do I see a few older adults sort of nodding slightly there? Recent letter to the Times, do you think? No. That was written in A.D. 1274 by Peter the Hermit. Times haven't really changed. Children and young people can be unruly, that's right. It's part of their energy. And of course it's our job as adults to show them the rules, to domesticate and socialise them, to ensure they conform to our cultural norms. Learning the rules, becoming responsible and orderly, is what being a grown-up is all about, isn't it? Well, yes and no. See, the Gospels are pretty clear that the church leaders during Jesus' time were insistent that everyone should keep to the rules. And the Gospels also tell us that Jesus' disciples were pretty good at creating new ones. New rules such as no children near Jesus, no one in the crowd to touch him, no one to talk to that Samaritan woman, no one to waste expensive perfume. Lots of rules. And what was Jesus' response to the church leaders and to his disciples and their rules? It was nearly always, knock it off. Followed by a talk, not a lecture, that said something like this. You still don't get it, do you? This isn't about following rules. It's about following me. It's not about what we can't do. It's about celebrating what we can do through our Father in heaven. And whether we like it or not, according to the social and political norms of the day, Jesus was definitely unruly. He was a rule breaker. He taught his followers how to break the cultural rules of the day. It was Jesus who touched lepers against the rules. It was Jesus who broke the Sabbath against the rules. It was Jesus who forgave people when the rules said stone them. The religious leaders not only accused him of breaking the rules over and over again, they put him to death for it. But Jesus helped his followers to understand which rules were right and which rules were nonsense. So there may be times when being unruly is actually essential. Children are very good at playing. Adults less so. Too frivolous, no time for that, too busy getting through mountains of work, solving life's problems to engage in something as unproduct uh, unproductive as playing. 
and yet behaviorists tell us that we should play more as a way of releasing the life-smothering grip of busyness and stress. One Christian therapist has said that play is an expression of God's presence in the world. And if you want to see a clear sign of God's absence in a society, it's when you cannot see children playing or you cannot hear laughter. A church minister recently avowed that he would prefer his church to be known as the church that knows how to play together rather than the church that knows how to pray together. You cannot read the parables of Jesus without picking up the twinkle in his eyes. He constantly used funny stories, metaphor, hyperbole, irony. He was able to protect the seriousness of the gospel by interspersing his message with a sense of playfulness. And if you haven't seen that in the Gospels, I suggest you reread them, because it's there very obviously. There's a story about a family on holiday. One afternoon, while walking along a beach, the eldest son, no longer a teenager, runs up to his father and says, let's build a sandcastle. Now, it's about 20 years since either of the parents has done such a thing, but soon everyone's digging. A younger son ties his t-shirt to a pole, sticks it just behind where the castle is being built, and he sets the family a challenge. We must build our castle strong enough to stop the waves from knocking down the flag. If the flag hits the sand, we're all dead. So the family accept the challenge. And while the building is underway, the father, dad, spots a man walking along the beach with a little lad who looks about five years age. And thinking, how can we build a sandcastle without a little boy? So he runs over to them and he dramatically falls on his knees and he pleads, little boy, we need your help. See that flag over there? We have to build a sandcastle strong enough to keep the water from knocking down the flag or the sand becomes poison and we're all dead. And the look on the boy's face seems to echo his thoughts. You warned me about people like this, Dad. Let's get out of here. And the boy's father shakes his head and they walk away very quickly. But the sandcastle construction continues. And by now it's quite big. And the little boy is seen again. This time his father's let him run to the edge of the water and play tag with the waves. But obviously he's not meant to get his feet wet. And he has. And he's in the water and his father's having a go at him. Get out of the water, his father shouts, which is exactly what the little boy was trying to do. So dad runs over again, and he finds himself saying, look, you're already wet and sandy and muddy. You might as well come and help us with the sandcastle. And this time the little boy's father reluctantly agrees. Now soon the castle is completed, and the tide has started to batter its walls. And soon everyone is desperate to mend the breaches. And the little lad shouts out, look out, as the biggest wave in the world arrives. And instinctively, without saying a word, everyone bunches around the flag in a group hug, just as the waves wash over the first wall of the castle. And then it smashes down the second wall of the castle, but it's held back by the third wall of the castle. And the flag remains standing, and everyone lets out a huge yell the loudest coming from the little boy. 
a fantastic family moment with everyone being and feeling like kids again. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we're giving a quick glimpse of Matthew's first and life-changing meeting with Jesus. It says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, no one really knows what was going on in Matthew's mind when Jesus came up to him. But I like to imagine that Jesus leant over and whispered in his ear, Hey, Matthew, want to build a sandcastle? And Matthew almost leaps out of his skin, his heart scooting across his chest. The hidden child inside, excited like never before. And he says yes, and he ends up following Jesus for the rest of his life wherever Jesus went, to the beach, to the playground, to the cross. If we're interested in being part of God's kingdom, maybe it's time that we rediscovered some of the childlike qualities that we need. We need to have a complete set of childlike tools in our adult toolbox. Things like trusting, forgiving and forgetting, curiosity, a sense of wonder, unpretentiousness, in awe of our creator, telling things as they are, willing to ask questions, not afraid to admit mistakes, asking for help, knowing when to be noisy, when to be unpredictable, when to be unruly. And then, when we've tried out those tools, it's time that we took time to play others into God's kingdom. Amen.